everyone, and welcome to Security Escape, where we discuss current research and events related to security and strategic studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, 16th of January 2023, for our episode on nuclear deterrence and its effectiveness in South Asia. My name is Tamara, I'm a political science student and one of the members of the Security Escape team. Today we have Azar Nakvi, a graduate student doing a Master of Management at the University of Calgary. He wrote two peer-reviewed articles for the Pakistan Horizon during his time as a freelance researcher at the Pakistan Institute of International Affairs. He will interview Dr. Sarah Banu. She has a PhD in Strategic Studies from the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. Currently, she is a sessional instructor at the Political Science Department. Her research focuses on the nuclear non-proliferation regime, nuclear weapons issues in South Asia, and international relations theories. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Security Escape. Well, thank you for that. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in, and thank you to Dr. Bano for taking the time. Now, the subject of discussion is quite contentious, to say the least. Uh, with that being said, we're not going to go too deep into it because that would be impossible and take up a lot of our time. But this would be a good way to introduce the idea of nuclear deterrence in South Asia. So with that being said, the big question, Dr. Bano, is have nuclear weapons maintained peace between India and Pakistan? And follow up to that, how do we even define peace and conflict within this South Asian context? Well, thanks, Azhar. Thanks for inviting me. You asked about how much nuclear deterrence has contributed towards peace in South Asia. So to answer your question, I do not believe that it has contributed to stability and belief in South Asia. The nuclearization of India and Pakistan has a significant effect on the nature of conflict in South Asia. So according to deterrence theories that we study in strategic studies, so expectations were, you know what, that nuclearization would create stability. It would dampen tensions between India and Pakistan. So existence of nuclear weapons, of course, it is going to uh, neutralize India's uh, convention superiority and it will modify Pakistan's uh, risk-taking behavior. But empirical evidence shows that it did not happen. At a strategic level, we do see that large-scale conventional wars are not happening. But what we do see here that, you know, it has increased uh, risk-taking behavior. It has increased greater risk. It has increased low-intensity conflicts, and which has uh, created strategic instability. And strategic instability always have risk of actual use of nuclear weapons. So here, I believe that nuclear weapons did not bring stability in the region, but it has enhanced greater risks and chances of nuclear use. Thank you. That was quite profound. And you answered a bit of my second question, which was that much of what we know about nuclear theory is derived from the conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. Obviously, these theories relate to superpower conflict. So you've touched a bit on the need for strategic stability at the highest levels in order for stability to be assured. But as you have said, empirical evidence shows that that's not the case. But are there any theories that can fit the existing South Asian dynamic, or is there a need to formulate new region-specific theories? 
that's a really great question. So when nuclearization of South Asia started, acquisition of nuclear weapons by India and Pakistan, so uh, there was this hope that, you know, the way war was uh, avoided by the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, that could happen same in South Asia, because the role of nuclear weapons is deterrence. That is what we know that this weapon is so catastrophic that it eliminates the chances of war. It is based on this rational choice theory. It means that states are rational and they know that no policy objective is worth of nuclear war. So this was expectation there. And here, there was this optimism that we can apply these Cold War lessons in South Asia, and that can give us hope, that can give us stability there. So what happened that we do see stark differences, what happened during Cold War and what is happening at this regional level. So first is, the United States and Soviet Union did not share border. They do not share border. Geographically, they are way apart from each other. Second thing is, and India and Pakistan, of course, they are so close to each other, they share long border, and geographically, they are close, which enhances, which increases chances of war, of course. Second thing is that uh, in case of uh, Cold War, in case of the United States and Soviet Union, we do see that there was this flight time was long. Here, missile flight time was 30 minutes uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. In case of South Asia, so this flight time is three minutes. It means that, you know, there is literally no warning time there. Third thing is that the United States and the Soviet Union did not have any um, territorial disputes. So here we do see, so they were in favor of maintaining status quo rather than taking risk to change, uh, you know, to gain territorial gains. And this is what we haven't seen during Cold War, that Soviet Union and the United States, they hadn't had any territorial disputes and they were uh, interested in maintaining status quo there. And then another difference that we do see during Cold War and uh, in South Asian situation is that, you know, existence of non-state actors were not there. So here we do see that in South Asia, there is non-state actors are there, which complicates situations. Uh, so because of these reasons, I do not think that we can apply Cold War theories are applicable in case of South Asia. Another major difference is that during Cold War, the deterrence was between the Soviet Union and the United States. So it was bilateral deterrence. So here we did see bilateral deterrence. Uh, both superpowers were deterring each other perfectly. In case of South Asia, we do see trilateral deterrence. Trilateral deterrence means that here is a, there is a triangle between India, Pakistan, and China. So China's inclusion of China is that triangle, of course, that complicates situation there. For example, India's nuclear deterrence is against both China and Pakistan, and Pakistan's nuclear deterrence is exclusively for India. Here we do see that, and this is what uh, one scholar, Viping Naran, said that, you know, India believes in a minimum credible deterrence. But the dilemma India is, is facing that what is minimum uh, towards Pakistan is not credible towards, towards China, and what is credible towards China is not minimum towards Pakistan. So here, this trilateral relations has further complicated this thing. So here, what we do need, we need regional level theories, deterrence theories, specific to their situation, rather than having this one size fit all 
applying these Cold War lessons there. Uh, another thing is that, you know, there is this belief, general belief that, you know, India, uh, this during Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were able to avoid this Third World War because of existence of nuclear weapons. But what we do see that, you know, they were so close, uh, there were accidental use of nuclear weapons, there was organizational failure use of nuclear weapons. So uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, the, both states realized they came too close to this nuclear war. So here, one U.S. general said that, you know, we avoided nuclear war purely because of luck, not because of deterrence. Oh, that's quite a plethora of interesting points you raise, and I'm going to get back to them. But one thing you said about one of the differences between superpower nuclear deterrence and what we see in South Asia is the fact that they had no territorial disputes to speak of. But wouldn't you also agree that there's this idea that when the U.S. and the USSR were at odds, to put it nicely, they had no other powers above them? They didn't answer to anyone else. Uh, of course, we don't see that in the case of South Asia. We've seen Pakistan's growing closeness to China, which at an unprecedented level ever since uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative came about, and the United States pivoting towards India as its bulwark of defense against China. So how does that complicate issues even further? In the region, does that raise the chances of something going wrong? Or do you think that superpower involvement uh, might just help reduce some of that risk of nuclear conflagration? Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you so much for bringing that up. So here, another difference that we do see during Cold War and this South Asian situation was that these two superpowers, they were not relying on third party. So here in South Asia, what we have seen that after nuclearization, during these crises, both India and Pakistan, they were relying on external factors there. So what we have seen that, uh, whether it's Kargil, whether it's uh, all the uh, subsequent crises in South Asia, we do see that both states, they started giving nuclear signals in order to motivate, in order to force external forces like, of course, the United States to intervene and play its role in uh, in this uh, crisis mitigation between India and Pakistan. But now the thing is that with rise of China, that situation is being complicated. So how that situation is being complicated? Because now America is focusing on counterbalancing China. So first, America was in a position to, to play this mediator role, to, uh, to pressurize India and Pakistan, to defuse crises and all that. But now the United States is decisively on India's side. So here, U.S. is uh, is focusing on to have this counterbalance of China. And of course, India is the best bet for the United States. Here we have seen that what happened uh, during Bush administration, uh, junior Bush administration, India was offered nuclear deal. So it was like during Bush administration, these solid strategic relations were established. Strategic partnership was established between the United States and uh, India. So here, all these nuclear sanctions were lifted against India. These sanctions were imposed after this 1998 nuclear test. So these sanctions were lifted against India. And now US and uh, India, they are strengthening their strategic partnership to counterbalance China. Another thing is that uh, India is part of this quad group. 
So Quad Group is considered a quadrilateral security dialogue. It is like uh, the United States, Japan, India, and Australia are member of these. And China terms this group as Asian NATO, that this group is focusing on to counterbalance China. So here, India, along with other Quad Groups, is working closely to deal with the rising um, Chinese challenge. So now we do see that China is, of course, moving towards Pakistan there. Here we have seen that Belt and Road Initiative is being initiated in Pakistan. So China is heavily investing in Pakistan. And now we do see this Cold War dynamic there where, of course, Pakistan is being supported by China and India is being supported by the United States. So here we do see that international dynamics play an important role in South Asia. So South Asia is becoming Again, like Cold War, South Asia is becoming an important venue for great power competition. Well, you've already touched on what I was going to ask, but this next question is going to be a bit vague. Obviously, no one can predict the future. But to provide some context for our listeners, Pakistan and the United States have had a relationship that has ebbed and flowed over the years. I mean, during the Cold War, Pakistan was more than willing to signal itself as an ally of the United States against communism. But during those decades, uh, their relationship, as I said, ebbed and flowed. There were embargoes by the United States. There were sanctions. That changed after the events of 9-11 when Pakistan became a major non-NATO ally. But even After 2011, when Osama bin Laden was killed on Pakistani soil, that relationship has soured, to say the least. But where I'm going with this is that we've seen recently India's insistence on buying uh, Russian oil. And I'm going to connect this in a minute. India's insisted on buying Russian oil. Obviously, the United States had expressed displeasure. My question to you is... Are India and Pakistan still trying to play a balancing act where Pakistan's trying to balance its relationship with China and the United States and India trying to balance its commitments to the United States and Russia? Does the path forward seem as clear cut as us saying Pakistan's going to China and India's going to the United States? Or is there a lot more nuance to be expected? At the larger picture, we do see that here is, we do see general trends here. Now, United States, unlike Cold War, during Cold War, India was more closer to the Soviet Union. But unlike uh, Cold War, we do see that India is strengthening its strategic partnership with the United States. And that is a fact that, you know what, India did not condemn Russian invasion of Ukraine. And India stayed neutral in its uh, United Nations resolution, despite of expectations that, you know, you need to support this democratic state and India being a democratic country needs to support. But India preferred to remain neutral in this conflict. So India's position is, you know what, Europe is also getting oil from Russia. Uh, so Europe is dependent. So I am getting oil, and that is good for my economy, that is good for my stability there. So U.S. is accommodating India. U.S. is understanding that, you know, India needs to maintain its economic growth for a long-term strategic objective, and long-term strategic objective is, of course, regarding China's rise. Uh, So here we do see that India is balancing between the United States and Russia, but, of course, Modi said that 
you know what, this is not an era of war to President Putin. So that shows that India is implicitly supporting the Western countries. Another thing is, if we look at India's national interest, India's national interests are more aligned with the United States, that is a superpower, rather than with Russia, that is a declining power. So that doesn't mean that Russia is going to altogether give away its, uh, its relation with Russia, but we do see that structural factors force both the United States and India to work together. And that is an interesting thing is that, you know what, when United States during Bush administration offered this nuclear deal to India, then there was this group of scholars raised question that, you know, India's foreign policy is based off this non-alignment. We do see during Cold War and all that, so India is very much persistent in its strategic autonomy. So here we do see that. but. America's response is that if we are building these uh, this strategic partnership with India, that doesn't mean that automatically all our strategic interests are going to be aligned. So here, it means that India is going to differ with us. We are going to differ with India on different issues, but on a bigger issues that is maintaining balance of power in Asia, our strategic interests are aligned. In case of Pakistan, of course, Pakistan, when, of course, US NATO forces were in Afghanistan, Pakistan was strategically important for America. So here, uh, of course, Pakistan was getting benefit of that alignment with, uh, with America. But after U.S. Uh, military forces withdrawal from Afghanistan, we do not see that uh, the United States has much strategic interest in Pakistan, apart from, of course, maintaining political stability because of existence of nuclear weapons. That is wonderful. It's also wonderful that you touched on the 2005 civil nuclear sharing agreement between the United States and India, which, of course, we're going to discuss towards the end. What I wanted to talk about now are more specific events. I mean, the past couple of decades, or since the turn of the century, we've seen sporadic increases uh, in the intensity of the ongoing conflict between Pakistan and India. These events, uh, of course, are not confined to, but include the uh, 2001-2002 standoff, the attacks in Mumbai in 2008, the 2016 surgical strikes after the attacks on Patankot Air Base, and the 2019 airstrikes and Pakistan's Operation Swift retort, and the most recent, where a BrahMos cruise missile was fired into Pakistani soil. This, of course, includes ongoing cross-border skirmishes. So what I wanted to talk to you about, keeping these in mind, how do these events impact the existing security dynamic in the region? Like, do we treat them as commonplace, or do we see them now as a worrying trend of escalation that will only reach a potentially catastrophic end in the near future? I mean, do we treat these as normal, is is my question. So I do not see it as a normal. I see it as, you know, worrying trend that has potential for nuclear escalation. So what we do see, that is another concept we do know from Cold War, 
context that is called uh, security insecurity paradox. So it means that when you have nuclear weapons, it, it gives you stability at strategic level, but at tactical level, you are going to have conflicts and you are going to have these low intensity conflicts. So that is normal because then states are entrusted to keep these conflicts limited conflicts and not to escalate to full-fledged wars because of nuclear escalation there. But what we have seen there that these crises has lowered this nuclear threshold. Here, what we see that both states are having more risk-taking behavior there. And that always, of course, has potential to lead to nuclear, actual use of nuclear weapons. Uh, for example, we do see that in 2001 and in 2002 standoff, we do see that Indian parliament was attacked by terrorists. And in that six uh, terrorists and these eight security forces members were killed. India mobilized 800,000 forces along border. And of course, Pakistan also responded by mobilizing its forces along these, these uh, along its border. So here, of course, United States intervened there and then um, pressurized uh, both countries to defuse this crisis there. Pakistan promised that Pakistan will end its support for terrorism and Pakistan will take measures to prevent that events. But what we do see in 2008, it happened again. And here, 10 terrorists uh, terrorist went to India and they had this coordinated attack in which more than 160 people were killed. Of course, at international level, that was condemned. This terrorist attack was condemned. What India came up with, India came up with this idea that since I am having this no nuclear first use doctrine, it means that India says I will not be first one to use nuclear weapons. It means that if I am being attacked by nuclear weapon, then I will attack back. Otherwise, I will have no nuclear first use. So here India came up with this idea that Pakistan should not get this idea that because of existence of nuclear weapons, India is not going to uh, have some sort of retaliation. So India came up with this doctrine of that we called it cold start strategy. So here cold start strategy means that India is going to have limited military operations in Pakistan to punish these terrorists or to attack these terrorist camps uh, in Pakistan's border, in Pakistan's territory. But Pakistan responded to this cold start strategy by having this full spectrum deterrence. Full spectrum deterrence means that Pakistan's response is that if, if Indian conventional armed forces are infiltrating into Pakistan's area, Pakistan is going to use tactical nuclear weapons against them. So it means that the threshold, nuclear threshold, it's been lowered. It means that you are going to use these nuclear weapons against Indian um, armed forces. India's response is that, you know what, uh, attack on Indian armed forces, even in foreign land, would um, lead to massive retaliation. Now, massive retaliation means that if Pakistan is going to use tactical nuclear weapons, small nuclear weapons, India is going to use strategic nuclear weapons. So strategic nuclear weapons means that total destruction of Pakistan. So India's position is, you know what, India's territory is larger than Pakistan. It's four times larger than Pakistan. So India can afford to survive Pakistan's attack, but Pakistan cannot afford India's massive retaliation, India's nuclear attack. So Pakistan will be wiped off the map. So here, the thing is that now both states, they have different 
understanding of nuclear threshold. So here, if Pakistan thinks that my use of nuclear weapon is going to lead to Indian massive retaliation, I should go first and attack Indians all uh, strategic locations, strategic targets there. And if India thinks that Pakistan is going to use small nuclear weapons against Indian forces, India should go first and attack Pakistan's uh, military targets there. So in stable deterrence, both states should not have any incentives to initiate conflict. Here we do see in case of South Asia, both India and Pakistan, they do have incentives because they want to change this status quo. They are not interested because of this uh, territorial conflict of Kashmir. Both are interested to change this status quo there. So here, what we have seen that in 2016, there was attack on uh, Pathan Court Air Force uh, in which 17 Indian, uh, Indian forces members were killed. And this is first time India used this surgical strike. So small team of Indian commandos went inside Pakistan's territory and uh, they did this operation. And uh, India's side of story is that we attacked these uh, safe houses of terrorists. Pakistan denied that, but later admitted that, uh, you know, this surgical strike happened, but Pakistan did not respond to that. But what happened in 2019? In 2019, uh, air strike happened. Again, there was this uh, terrorist attack and 40 Indian armed forces members were killed. In response to that, India did airstrike inside Pakistan across this line of control. So India's side of story is that in that airstrike, I killed, I targeted a terrorist camp and I killed, uh, that killed large number of terrorists. Pakistan's side of story is that did not happen. It was just like, you know, one crow was killed and two trees were burned and that's all it happened. It was like a blast on a deserted area. But Pakistan responded to that. So in which... What happened? Pakistan forces, uh, Air Forces um, F-16 and Indian MiG-21, they were engaged with each other and uh, Pakistan shot down Indian Armed Forces, uh, Air Forces MiG-21 and pilot was ejected into the Pakistan's territory. Pakistan forces captured the pilot, but later handed over to India as a gesture of peacemaking. So this shows that, that we do see this tendency of armed conflicts. And when there is tendency of armed conflict, it always has risk of escalation there. Another thing is, and this was concerning what happened March this year, that Indian missile Brahmos was fired into Pakistani territory. Indian Defense Ministry said, you know, this was technical malfunction and it apologized for that. But the thing is, the, the weapon was, of course, unarmed, but it shows that Indian weapons are ready to launch. It means that, so Indian missiles has capability of both nuclear weapons uh, to carry both nuclear weapons and conventional weapons. So this creates chances of misperception. So there is what we have, one of the lessons that we need to learn from Cold War, that Soviet Union and United States, they had consistent armed control risk mitigation 
mechanism in place. Here we do not see that is happening in case of India and Pakistan. They do not have any confidence building measures. They do not have any armed control or any agreements related to strategic stability. So here this event shows that in March 22, where Brahmo's missile was fired, that both needs to start negotiations to have risk mitigation mechanism in place. I believe the Historically, Pakistan has always been seen as the more irresponsible uh, nuclear state. Of course, that's not without reason. I mean, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, uh, Pakistan has been susceptible to terrorist attacks of its own. And that has, of course, raised concerns about the stability of its nuclear uh, weapons, about whether they fall in the hands of terrorists. But this incident this year, where the Indian cruise missile was fired, do you believe that it illustrates that there are no responsible nuclear actors in the region? I mean, I understand. I mean, even if we take Indian, the Indian government's position that it was a technical malfunction at face value, I think that it shows even more, as you said, that both states are a kitten's whisper away from doing something that is irrational and that there are no responsible actors in this equation. Yeah, that's right. I absolutely agree with you. So here, uh, and this Eric Schlosser, he wrote this book, Command and Control. And in that book, he documented hundreds of incidents where United States was so close to having nuclear explosion because of this uh, command and control issues there. So his conclusion in that book was that, you know what, these uh, the United States uh, and the Soviet Union, they were superpowers, they were economically advanced, they were politically stable, they were having these technological advanced countries. Even these countries were having these, uh, you know, organizational failure or command and control failure issues. We cannot guarantee this, like what is going to happen for these regional states, which are nowhere close to these superpowers there. So his, uh, his conclusion is that we are sitting on a ticking bomb that any time anything can happen there because of this command and control failures or this miscalculation or accidental use of nuclear weapons there. And that interesting thing is that when uh, the United States offered this nuclear civilian agreement to India, so United States propagated this deal as we are giving this, of course, the real motive was strategic one, vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, but United States came up with this justification that, you know what, India has displayed responsible nuclear states, so India deserves this treatment there. So we cannot give, when Pakistan demanded same deal, same agreement, U.S. response was that, you know what, your record is not uh, as responsible nuclear state, you have this AQ Khan episode. So here, India is a responsible nuclear state. So that's why we are offering this nuclear deal to India. Uh, but Pakistan, it was really important for Pakistan uh, to build its uh, its repo as a responsible nuclear state. So here, Pakistan's position is, you know what? Even during these all these terrorist attacks were happening in Pakistan, Pakistan's nuclear weapon state uh, stayed same. So it was important to have that international standing to qualify as a 
uh, as a responsible nuclear weapon state. And recently, President Joe Biden said, you know, Pakistan nuclear weapons are not safe. So Pakistan reacted strongly. And Pakistan said that, you know, this Brahmo's cruise missile accident shows that India's system is not credible rather than pointing finger at us. So here we do see it is like, even though uh, the United States, you know, praised India as a responsible nuclear weapon state, uh, but there is no such thing. For these regional states, we always have concerns of use of nuclear weapon because of misperception, because of miscalculation or accidental use of nuclear weapons. For my final question, given the fact that we're short on time, I'm going to build up a scenario and I'm going to try and get your opinion on the way forward just to conclude our episode. Now, we've talked repeatedly about the fact that the main reason why India and Pakistan are at odds is the disputed region of Kashmir. And it would be unrealistic to say that tomorrow a referendum is going to be held in Kashmir and the Kashmiris are going to be able to choose whether they want to go with India or Pakistan or just stay independent. That's not realistic enough for us to consider that as a possibility. But with that out of the way, assume that you are an all-seeing, all-knowing mediator, and that India and Pakistan's governments have come to you and said, okay, we wish to talk with each other. Mm -hmm. What are the steps you're going to take induce confidence-building measures? What, what are the specific things you would do to lower the risk of conflagration within the region? So here, Cold War gives us really good lessons regarding this risk mitigation mechanism. So one thing that the United States and the Soviet Union did at that time, they had this agreement, explicit agreement that we are not going to change any status quo and we are not going to use any military force for any territorial gain or to any attempt to change status quo. So this type of thing India and Pakistan needs to have that they are not going to use military because of these concerns of nuclear escalation. They are not going to use military to change this status quo. Another thing is that the good thing is both, uh, both states, they have this agreement that they are not going to target each other's um, military uh, installations and they, are not going to, and they are going to give each other warning if there is any missile test is scheduled. So these things are good. But here at the strategic and the political level, in terms of Kashmir, there were offers when uh, Musharraf, President Musharraf was in power in Pakistan, he offered this, that we are going to make this Kashmir as an autonomous region, and we can share the rule of that, and here we can come up with that solution. But India at that time did not accept that. So there are backdoor diplomacy. There, there were incidents where you know, we do see backdoor diplomacy was happening between these two states for the solution of this. But until and unless both states do not accept status quo, respect this line of control, and use military to change these territorial borders, then uh, there is always risk of nuclear use there. So dialogue is very important. And we do not see dialogue is being interrupted by these crises in post-nuclearization. So both, both states need to negotiate and need to come up with all these confidence-building measures. And uh, they need to have this clear communication. Here we do see hotline was there during Cold War. They need to have clear communication, high-level communication, in order to decrease the chances of accidental use of nuclear weapons. Thank you. But 
I'm sorry, you just uh, prompted another question in my head, and it's related to the way forward. As we understand, the variables in this current equation are the use of non-state actors to conduct terrorist attacks on Indian soil, which is one of the justifications for why conflict breaks out. But the world is never stable, to say the least, not in a state of equilibrium. And we've seen that certain external factors can potentially exacerbate the relationship between Pakistan and India. Water has been used as, as an example of things that could potentially ignite, rather, conflict. So my question to you is, what other justifications in the next 20 to 30 years are these governments going to have to start fighting again? That's a really good point. And thank you so much for uh, bringing that up. So here we do see that, you know, Pakistan has, has provided us some red lines. So here are the red lines of my nuclear use. So first red line is um, that is spatial threshold. So if Indian army is going to occupy a large territory, Pakistan's territory, then that would lead to nuclear use. Uh, second is military one. If India is able to destroy much of military, Pakistan's military, then that that is the red line for nuclear use. Third is economic one. So economic threshold. So it means that if India is going to do something that is going to strangle Pakistan economically, so Pakistan is going to use nuclear weapons. And the fourth one is political threshold, that if India is supporting insurgency in Pakistan or instability in Pakistan, that would lead to nuclear use. Now, these last two thresholds are concerning one. Here, these are non-military threshold one, and it says that there is no clear definition of this economic threshold and political threshold. So here we do see that normally Pakistan is having political instability, and most of the reasons are related to internal factors rather than external factors. So here Pakistan again is, uh, is lowering this nuclear threshold that these two non-military factors would also lead to use of nuclear weapons. Thank you so much. It is a privilege to be able to meet you again. Thank you again, Ashar and Dr. Bono, for your time and the insights about the nuclear weapons issues in South Asia. To our audience, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Security Escape if you haven't already. And don't forget to watch for new episodes every third Monday of the month. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next month with another great conversation on security and strategic studies.